Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients. We have partners. Welcome to another episode of From Vision to Creation. I'm your host, Alexander Schmieding, and today we have the privilege of delving into the remarkable journey of a commercial director and accomplished race car driver whose passion for storytelling was ignited at a young age and has since set the industry ablaze with his unique talents. Join us as we explore the life and career of a true luminary in the world of directing, Michael Schramm. Michael's journey in directing began in his high school days. It was during a film project that he first discovered his unquenchable love for the art of visual storytelling. What made this story particularly special was the driving force behind it. Michael and his peers had decided to create their film because they heard a renowned film critic would be visiting their school. It was this very project that ignited Michael's love for both filmmaking and race car driving. Since those early days of cinematic ambition, Michael Schramm has risen to becoming a driving force in the world of commercial directing. He's not just a filmmaker, but a master of his craft, with a reputation of bringing a delectable level of appetite appeal to the screen. Michael has worked with some of the biggest food chains, from Dunkin' Donuts and Red Lobster to McDonald's, Burger King, Carl's Jr., and many more. Prepare to be inspired as we journey through the life and accomplishments of a visionary who has turned his passion into a thriving business, captivating the hearts and appetites of audiences around the world. Join us as we explore the boundless possibilities that unfold when passion and creativity collide. Well, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate your time, and thank you for that tour of your studio. That was really something special. Good. It's fun to show it off. So I want to start with, with your childhood. I know you grew up on Bleecker Street in New York City. When did you first realize that you had an interest in becoming a director? Uh, that's a, that's a, a fun question. It was high school. And a group of us were really interested in photography and, and we'd get together and go out and shoot photos of New York City together and we kind of created this small group with the same interests. I guess kind of what, what the drama club would have been, but we were like future filmmaker dreamers. So what happened when we were seniors, we went to this little school up on the Upper West Side called Baldwin School. And for our commencement graduation event, they had invited Pauline Kael, who was a, a very well-respected uh, movie critic during those years. And we said, well, if she's going to come, let's make a film and have her critique it 
while we're being graduated from high school. Wow. <laughs> so that, that was the master plan. So we made kind of a documentary style interviewing all the students and talking about the competition of school and who was going to go where and what people were going to do and what they wanted to do. So we had this little filmmaking cabal and we said, um, we started shooting it and then we said for the finale of the film, let's do some type of a race. What would be fun to shoot? It's kind of reverse engineered of what would be a lot of fun to do. And we knew that uh, back then it was Mayor Lindsay. He had just created the film commission for New York to assist filmmakers in making a movie. So we walked down to the, the new office, which had just opened, I think, for a couple of weeks. Walked in there as high school kids and said, we want to do um, a, a, we're doing this high school film because Pauline Kael is going to critique our movie at graduation. And we want to do a film and we want to race our cars down Park Avenue dressed in caps and gowns. <laughs> and I'm sure you loved, did he, did he love this idea? So they said, really? <laughs> you want to do that? They said, yeah, we want to do it. And they said, okay, we'll think about it. So they gave us a permit. And I think the permit was like number five or number two. I don't know. It was one of the first New York filming permits. Oh, ever. Yeah, with that new commission, right. And this, wow. was, a, this was the time that where, you know, uh, Sidney uh, Lamette was shooting a lot of New York movies. And um, it was a time when New York filmmaking, because they had gotten this office going, it was becoming a, a big deal to shoot in New York City. So we gave them all the information about the shoot. We said, we're going to start at 5 a.m. on the top of 74th Street and Park Avenue. And we wanna, we're going to, we want to set up, it looks like we're racing all the way down to, back then it was the Pan Am building, do a U-turn and come back uptown. <laughs> and we had five cars. You know, kids borrowed their dad's Porsche, you know, and we had some sports cars and stuff. And... We got there at five in the morning, mounted, and we were putting all the cameras. You know, we had borrowed, borrowed all this uh, equipment from one of the rent, the film rental companies. Cameraed up all the cars, and we realized there were like thirty police cars there, with sixty police officers that shut down the street for us. And we're, you know, we had only just got our driver's licenses, <laughs> so. They used us as a beta test to get the machine moving and how they would do it. So it all kind of, the timing was perfect. The police department, the film part of the police department wanted to uh, practice their exercises and how to close down streets to do filming. And when you say you would camera up the cars, yeah. who, who taught you how to do that? Did you guys, was it trial and error? Yeah, and we were just interested in mm. it. So we, you know, we were just... We figured out how to do it with all those suction mounts and stuff, and it was kind of fun. And it was a small group of us that were really interested in it, again, like a, like a club. So you put together this film, and then you, you end the film with racing down Park Avenue in, in caps, caps and gowns, which is right. amazing. I love it. <laughs> and everybody went nuts, you know. How'd you do that? You know? And then Pauline Kael gave us a, a rave review, and it was just a lot of fun. And so when, we were hooked. When you showed her the film, were you with her or did she get back to yeah, you? Yeah, she hadn't seen it until we showed it at the event, at the graduation. Wow. And okay. then she gave her talk after the film. 
So you've known that you've been interested in film since high school, which is amazing because, you know, most people don't figure out what they want to do until, you know, even a few years after they graduate from college. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, it's an interesting thing. I've always had this, I'm sure everybody, I'm, I'm not everybody, but some people, I always had this feeling that whatever I th- tried to inspire myself to do something, it would be the last thing I thought about before I fell asleep. Mm. Oh, that's good. I like that. You know, when I was really young, like sixth, seventh grade, I always wanted to be in a rock band. So to fall asleep, but I always dreamed myself being in a rock band. And I, I believe somehow your unconscious gets that implant. And then the decisions you make during the following hours and days all kind of lead you to whatever that dream was. The seed that you're planting in your subconscious before you go to bed. Correct. And I've used that forever. So, and I used it, you know, um, when I was older and I started directing and I could afford it, I always said, I want to become a race car driver. And I dream about racing cars before I went to bed and then somehow I got to drive a professional race car for Porsche. I read that you drove a Porsche 911 in the 24 hours of Daytona in 2000, 2001, 2002, and 2003. Correct, yes. And in 2002, we won in GT, and in 2003, we won the race overall. So, a great experience. And again, it has to, with some of the similarities there between, you know, what we do in filmmaking with what we do at the studio, it's about having the, this team and we kind of, from high school, we learned that this kind of group that we had was really a crew and a team. And the same exists with motorsports. It's, it's, it's not just you winning the race. It's everybody has to put in their best effort in order to win. You know, one mistake of the tires, one mechanical error, the car's going to break or you're going to crash or whatever. And the same with the, the crew that we work with in film. It's the tighter the knit the crew is and the teamwork and the sharing of the responsibility to come together and one day make something happy. And at the end of the day, you go, wow, we made that. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And the same with racing. Wow, we won that. That's cool. So it all kind of started back then in, in that group making that silly little movie in high school. And do you think that scene that you filmed racing down Park Avenue do you think that had to do with your desire to race cars later? Exactly. It was all part of that adrenaline from, you know, racing down Park Avenue, saying, wow, this is fun. <laughs> and, and beyond that, you didn't have any training or, or did you have a mentor for racing? Well, I went to driving school, which okay. was the Skip Barber School in, in Connecticut at Lime Rock Park. And I did well in that school. So that also then gave me the, the gumption to keep going. <laughs> And you attended NYU and received a BFA in film from the Tisch School of Arts. Um, Correct. D- did you always know you wanted to go to NYU? Or did you have any interest in leaving New York? I, I wanted to be in New York. And also, I had the advantage of my parents worked at NYU. So it was convenient to go there. And it was uh, 
free. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it must have been nice too, you know, already knowing what you wanted to do and then getting to study at one of the best universities. Exactly. In the world. And it, it helped too that I had had experience making films uh, when I applied. So it wasn't an automatic you're in. I had, I had a good experience I could write about. And when I went to NYU film school, it was, it was really small. I mean, the class, I think our class maybe had, uh, you know, less than a hundred people in it at that time. Now it's, I don't even know how big a freshman class is at film school. Um, and it was an interesting time. Like I had mentioned before that filmmaking in New York city, it's kind of the halcyon days of New York filmmaking. I had, um, Sidney Lamette would come and talk to our, to our class, like numerous times about production because he was always a master at coming in under budget. Um, so he was as much of a, a pro producer, production manager, Sven Galli, in a way, of coming in under budget for all his movies. He was really well-liked by the studios. And then for my writing class, I, I had Marty Scorsese was our writing professor. You know, to be in New York in those times and be able to have those guys have access to those guys was pretty cool. And how long after you graduated did you start your own business? It was 10 years. And what were you doing the 10 years after film school? All kinds of stuff. I worked um, as a assistant photographer, with, and that's where I learned about advertising. Because uh, I worked on some, some movies, some long-form projects, but... I guess maybe it's my um, ADHD or whatever, but I didn't like working on the same thing for that period of time, long period of time. Um, and I liked the idea of going in, doing a project like we talked about, teamwork, end of the day, move on to the next thing. Which makes commercials perfect. It's per it just fits into the way my mind works. Yeah. So I worked for, in photography, I learned about advertising, and then I did my own um, spec piece was like a three minute film of what I thought I was best at doing. And then I got to show that around town and uh, got picked up by a, one of the uh, best production companies and they represented me for the beginning of my career. And so as a director, that's how you land gigs, right? You, would have, you have to have a production company representing you? Yes, you need production backup. I yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, because you can't do it all. You need to have sales, you need to have production, all that. And so at what point in your career did you think, hey, I can do this on my own, I can start my own business? I think that, that was um, after I was with that company, and I became a partner of that company. After a couple of years, I became a partner. But then uh, the age differentiation was, was big, and those guys were starting to phase out, and I knew I had to do something to keep it going. So the plan was to, to start our, my own operation. I started with my executive producer, who you haven't met, um, Carl Sturgis, and we've been together 37 years. He's been my executive producer. And what were some of the initial challenges you faced when entering the film industry on your own? I think just building a reputation, getting out there, you know, my dad always said, luck is the residue of design, you know, mm. which I believe in to a large extent. But also the age, you know, the, the creative people at the advertising agencies that hire me, 
back then, because I was with a company that had a good reputation, I, I was exposed to the creatives that did all the good work. So one thing leads to another. If you're working with the best people that are giving you the smartest work, then you you get perceived as being one of them, mm. which is where you know all that trophies over there are because of the people that came up with those great ideas. And you've worked with big clients. I mean, you know, Papa John's, Carl's Jr., Dunkin' Donuts, Red Lobster, the list goes on. Yeah. What was your first big client that you felt really excited about? I think early on it was probably the the fast food clients back in the 80s was like Burger King, you know, McDonald's. For what I was doing in terms of the imagery I was doing was that, and, and then cosmetics like L'Oreal, you know, doing some fashion things and, but all studio based work. I was never doing, you know, big sky pictures or location work. It's nice to sleep in your own bed at night too and not be on location for your whole life. And again, it's all about, I wanted that team. And I saw that having a production house and a studio was about keeping that team. So most of the people I work with today, I've been working with for 25 years, my crew. That's amazing because especially nowadays you hear that people are quitting their jobs, you know, left and right. What is it that you do to help build camaraderie and keep your team happy? I guess it's just respect, you know, even though I, I bust them a lot of times and sometimes get a little bit unruly with them, but everybody respects each other in our group. And we kind of have a, you know, Carl and I have established with our company like a kind of a no asshole clause. <laughs> and when, when something eeks, somebody eeks in there that's just not cool, we all get it, mm. you know? So it has this kind of self-propelling editing of, of human resources. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you start your own business, you start landing these um, big clients. And what has been the ma- the biggest shift you've seen in your industry? What Do things change quickly in terms of technology? What changes the quickest, would you say, in your industry? I'd say the technology has always changed. But, you know, we were shooting film up until 2007. So that was the one thing that... that oh, so... It, you, Film until 2007. Correct. Yeah. Wow. I, I thought, I, I figured that it would be digital by then. No, because the higher quality image back then, digital hadn't caught up with film till about then. And how has that changed the scope of your that's, projects? That's changed a lot in terms of being able to um, have real time, real time interactive with what you're shooting and what you're seeing on the screen and what the clients are seeing while you do it. So the amount of work that you can do within a day it's faster. Mm. Everything's faster. It's like when the fax machine came out, everything got faster. Uh, when FedEx came out, everything got faster. Um, so when, when the digital imaging came and everybody could see what was happening, at the end of the day, when you wrapped, you wrapped. When you were shooting film, you had to wait to see the film the next day, and I'm the only one that knew what it was going to look like. So it was a whole different kind of play that way. And then what happened also on, in parallel to the advertising um, industry is that what was kind of a cottage business where there were these, all these great creative small shops, all those shops were aging out and they were being devoured by holding companies because it became a global business 
more than just a localized advertising business. And when that happened and all, all the smaller agencies got bought up by conglomerate holding companies, the business became less, it became more corporatized and it wasn't as personal. And it grew so fast that nobody knew how to, everyone wanted to try and then commoditize the creativity, which you can't. Mm. I want to hear a little bit about your creative process. What, how do you come up with ideas for the, uh, the clients that you work with? I think, it, you know, I think it's all kind of built up over, you know, I, I think we've done over 4,000 TV commercials. And I think a lot of it just comes from frame of reference of physics and photography and, and also staying current with the technology and also staying current with, with pop culture imagery mm. and then adapting it to ideas. And I, I kind of specialize in appetite appeal and try to make things look as yummy as possible. And I think that's just kind of a sixth sense that seems to have be working and it hasn't died off yet you know it's like when you see when you see the right shot you just know it you're like that's it correct and then and then the clients i think get it too because like like a client like duncan i've been working for them for 20 years which i think is an unheard of in this business to have a consistency of working with with clients that large what is the reason for that? How do you keep your, these big clients of yours for, happy for so long? I don't know it, but maybe the data suggests that it equates to sales. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, that's always a good thing. But that would be something I'm not privy to, but it seems to me if there's, their sales are going up and, it, and we're connected somehow to it, even if we're at the bottom of the totem pole, it's going to be helpful to keep working that way. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever come across an experience where you maybe feel a bit of a creative block. Can you talk about a time that you experienced a creative block and then you overcame it? Yeah, I think the, there's always this underlying block that's like redundancy. You just don't want to do the same thing over and over again. So I think that's, it's more of that kind of a block where like, well, I already did that 10 ways to Sunday. You know, let's, let's think of some way we can... And I think the more excited you get about a project too, the more it opens up the, the ability to think new. So it comes from excitement from feeling it from clients and also getting, a, a, and also it helps to get a lot of uh, attaboys yeah. from your clients, you know? And it also helps to get where we don't see it in this business, but I feel it's helpful to get critique from people you work with that you're providing a service to, to get, you know, if I had a restaurant, I, I don't think I would mind getting notes from people like we take, like getting notes from our clients. I think it's a good thing. And that keeps it fresh and keeps you wanting to, um, to work hard for the people that are paying you. And there is some, even though it can be stressful when you receive some, you know, some, um, when you receive criticism, I think that it is also exciting because it presents a new challenge and gets you to think outside of the box and maybe see things a little differently. Right. And you'll find like that some of the best work is working with people whose skin isn't too thin and you can kind of battle it out a little bit creatively 
kind of get locked in a room and kind of say, well, now I disagree with you or you, and not, and still, and then still try to open up your thinking and not get locked into the corner. Right. And that's, that's a really excellent point because I feel like sometimes people do get, you know, stuck in the same routine, same way of doing things. So that is a great way to keep things fresh and new. Right. And I always try to tell creatives, Hey, don't, you know, let's work, let's battle this out. Don't start crying. <laughs> Cause I think people, I think the sensitivity level generationally is, is very uh, different from when I was 30. I think people are more sensitive. And so far, what has been your biggest lesson being in business for yourself? I think the biggest lesson to the, to the success of the business is having um, kind of a good yin-yang partnership with somebody like my executive producer who handles the business stuff. And I get to do what I do in the creative stuff and respecting that. And that's why it works. It's when you, you can't do everything well. And once you realize that, then by working with people you respect, it, even crew guys that have ideas and lighting guys that have ideas, and that's where the, that's where the fun is. And so when you're working on these projects, there are a lot of hands on deck. Um, and I know as, um, as a creative person myself, sometimes it's a little scary to trust other people to, you know, do, do what they're doing and contribute to the project. Do, have you experienced that at all? Or do you think it's best to just let people do what they do best? You, got, you just got to be good at pinpointing who does what well and give them that work well. And how have you maintained a healthy work-life balance? Because I, you're, you're, I imagine you've gotten pretty busy over the course of your career. What do you do to maintain that? Well, I think that was partly like the racing thing was good. It was a good to get it, have something else that you're really loving and have passion for and like the people. And then um, just having a, having the, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have this great farm and a great wife and, and be able to enjoy that. And did you learn any lessons in racing that you brought over to your work as a director? I think definitely, and that's, that's the excellence in the crew work. That's where that ties in. And it's very similar, you know, everyone doing their, their job and, and wanting to win. And here it's like everyone's doing their job so that we can wrap out at 7 o'clock with a good project. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're here at 8 in the morning, and by 7 we're like kind of, you know, we've been doing this for a while and we're good at it and we can get it done. We always get the job done here. That's why the, the clients like that, that we're done. We do it. And I've, I was reading that you have, um, that you worked on a project that is in the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art. Yes, um, yes. Can you, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, and that was a fun one. That was a, that was a terrific idea and a great premise in that um, it was when American Express first offered um, uh, protection insurance for something that you had bought. So when you buy something with an American Express card, if it breaks within a certain amount of time and, or if it gets stolen, you can get reimbursed for it, which is a brilliant idea. Because what's that add? Just a couple of pennies to everybody's bill probably. And mm. so, so we had to do these commercials showing things breaking. 
And when you kind of reverse engineer that, you know, showing uh, like a washing machine exploding, you know, with water. So we, we hooked up washing machine to the fire hydrant and stuff like that, <laughs> you know. And so we created all this kind of very stylized graphic imagery of things breaking. And it was very successful and got put in the MoMA. How did it get to into the MoMA? Uh, because the um, AICP, which is the uh, Association of Independent Commercial Producers, um, started an award process. And it was linked to the Museum of Modern Art because they wanted to start a collection of advertising to have a, a, um, a curation of advertising to represent the pop culture of the time. So there's a big collection in the museum in their, their archives of advertising. So this became part of that collection. What are some of your achievements that you're most proud of? Hmm. I don't know, making it to today, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, everybody says, what was your favorite commercial you ever did? And I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's all just one big thing. You know, I don't have a favorite. I've been thinking about the thing you said earlier about planting what it is that you want in your subconscious before going to sleep. Do you still do that today? Yes. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah. And what what are you planning in your subconscious nowadays? Well, I get I'm I'm excited about um driving again where I haven't driven much. I haven't raced raced, but I'm I'm excited about racing in uh, Porsche's 75th anniversary reunion in uh in Monterey, California at the end of September. So, I get to drive the old car that I drove 20 years ago. Oh, wow. In a race. Do, yeah. do, you, do you still you so you still own it? I'm no, assuming. I don't. The, the sponsor owns it. Oh, cool! Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's that's going to be so. You haven't seen it in twenty years. Well, I got to drive it at Daytona in a little heritage exhibition this last year because it was twenty years since we won it. So I got to do some laps in it then, which felt it was like riding a bike. So I'm excited about actually doing a little race with all the famous race car drivers that are going to be in that race, and with little old me. <laughs> <laughs> well, not so little anymore. <laughs> and we just took a tour of your a fascinating studio, and you were talking to me about how technology and AI is changing things. Yes. How is AI playing a role in what you do today? Well, I, I think that wh what's, what's going to happen in AI is there's a couple of things that it's providing now, and it's more, it's kind of like time-saving shortcuts in a way in terms of... Um, the process of inspiration before we do a project, AI cannot take over what we do. It's too bespoke what we do. But in terms of communicating with creatives on, like if you could use Midjourney, creating pitch decks of lighting ideas, of food styling ideas, you can delve into the AI to within an hour, get a bunch of images that can be inspiring to kind of communicate what my mind's eye wants to see. And I'm sure that's what's happening in architecture now, and that's everything. That's what it's going to be for inspiration first. Right. But not the full execution. That's right. Because they're not there. And that's, that's exactly how I've been using AI in my business. You know, I create marketing campaigns for different companies and we'll use AI just to spit out ideas. And then we end up picking the ones we like the most, tweaking them, giving it more of a you know human feel. Right. It's a tool, not a final 
Yes. Because at, because at the end of the day, nothing is more creative or inspiring than I think from, than what comes from the human mind. Yeah. Because we have judgment and morals and emotion, emotion, which, and we have appetite appeal in our heads. I've been playing a little bit around with, with key prompts for using yummy and appetite appeal, but the AI doesn't seem to, um, doesn't seem to react to that yet. It tends to give me, I think, what is averaged on the internet of imagery, of food, especially food stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, two months ago, all the AI hands had six fingers. You know, it's just not there. Right. I read that you're a bit of a foodie yourself. So it's kind of cool. It's really cool, actually, that you get to work with all these great food companies. <laughs> yeah, but and, and I didn't get interested in that until I had the uh, place upstate and had a farm and started cooking. And when I first moved to the na- the neighborhood where we are, there were no restaurants upstate. So being a city kid, we always ate out. <laughs> so I kind of... It was a necessity to try to start cooking and having fun with a with a Weber grill. Yeah, it's true. When you live in when you live in a restaurant desert, you have to learn how to cook. If not, you're not going to eat good food. <laughs> yep. And and that's happening to a lot. Of, like my crew guys, you know, we all we all. When I had my first studio in the '80s in New York City, all of my crew lived in New York City. We all they lived in the Village. They lived on the Upper West Side. Everybody lived in New York City. And and then I saw as everybody started you know, getting married and having kids and they moved to Westchester or Darien or, you know, over to Connecticut or whatever, they'd all start getting grills and cooking. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) it just, it's the natural. And, and Michael, what advice would you give to somebody who's, who is just starting their career in the film industry? I would say figure, you know, try to work as start at the bottom work as a PA and learn every aspect of the business. And, and then someone will spot you if they f- see you have a specialty that you seem to be doing better at, you know, like we're always looking for the PAs that can uh, handle logistics and not wreck the truck, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you just kind of rise it up. And again, we're, have that sub, subliminal subconscious seed planted of what you want to do. And somehow you might not realize it, but your subconscious is telling you what to do to get there. I believe. I do too. I, yeah. And I think that's great advice. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to start doing it tonight. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> good. See if it works. I yeah. know. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it's funny. I, 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 I never intentionally, would set an intention before bed, but I always have what I'm trying to achieve, what I'm trying to build on my mind. And I do find myself in these serendipitous situations at time where I'm like, that worked out perfectly. Yeah. Almost. So I I think that you're right that this, you know, planting seeds in your subconscious, I think it does cause you to act in a certain way and ultimately lead you to opportunities that are guiding you to where it is that you want to go. Yeah. I, I think it's legitimate. And, you know, probably speak to some psychology people, but they would probably agree. And I, I read this book um, when I was college age. I read this book uh, by, I think his name was Edgar Casey or something. It was about dreams, analyzing dreams and stuff. 
And, you know, every, people would say, well, I can't remember my dreams. But he had this mantra that if you said 10 times before you went to sleep, I will remember my dreams, I will remember my dreams, for some reason it works. You're kidding. I'm going to try that I mean, it worked for me too. for a while, and then I seem to remember. I, so it's, that's another thing. It's like just the planting. Mm -hmm. But Edgar Casey was on to something there, and I thought it was kind of interesting what I was saying about the inspiration stuff, uh, that he was saying that about forcing yourself to remember your dreams. And what's next for Shram Studios? I think we just try to keep this, this going and, and let it grow with the next generation of talents that's coming through. It's exciting. We have a, we have a relationship with a, a younger um, group of directors and pr production people um, that we bonded with and we're sharing assets and, and representation with called uh, Yacht Club. Out of, and they're based out of Brooklyn and here now. So we're, we're combining our abilities. Michael, if you can go back in time and offer your younger self one piece of advice before starting in this specific career, what would it be? Mm. I guess pick goals and keep your head down. Yeah, it sounds simple, but I think that's it. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. It was fun, Alexander. Appreciate it. As we wrap up this episode of From Vision to Creation, it's impossible not to be inspired by the incredible journey of our guest, Michael Schramm. His story is a testament to the power of following one's passions and forging a path where creativity and ambition intersect. From those formative high school days when Michael and his peers embarked on a cinematic adventure, his love for directing was ignited. It was there that he laid the foundation for what would become a remarkable career in the world of commercial directing. His entrepreneurial spirit has led him to become a sought-after commercial director known for his specialization in appetite appeal. His work with iconic brands like Dunkin' Donuts, Red Lobster, McDonald's, Burger King, Carl's Jr., and many more has left an indelible mark on the world of advertising. The narrative of Michael Schramm's life is a shining example of how following one's dreams and relentlessly pursuing one's passions can lead to extraordinary heights. As you've witnessed today, his journey is a testament to the limitless possibilities that unfold when ambition, creativity, and determination converge. Michael, we extend our heartfelt gratitude for sharing your incredible story with us. It's a reminder that with unwavering determination, the sky's the limit, and the race to success is a journey worth embracing. <laughs>